On today's episode of After the Battle Campfire, I talked to William Flores. Will was a Marine who deployed with me in Iraq in 2007. Like many of the Marines I've lost touch with, it's been a while since I talked to William. And we caught up. And I learned so much about him from this episode and his struggles and his search to find who he really is. I feel like this is one of the more important episodes I've recorded so far. So please sit back and enjoy After the Battle Campfire. Well, I'm back again with someone I have not seen in 13 years, 13 and a half years. Uh, One of my Marines that was with me during my tour in Iraq, Mr. William Flores, say hello. Hello, hello, hello. So how are you doing, man? It's been forever. It's been, like you said, I think almost 13 years. Um, Probably closer to 14 now. Yeah, I think closer to 14. Um, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, man. So when I met, when I met William, you were what? PFC or Lance Corporal? I was PFC and I was, I had just turned 21 years old. Damn, that yeah. was so long ago, man. Yeah. So we're going to start from the very beginning. Um, and I want to know. Where did you grow up? So originally I was born in Newark, New Jersey. And um, I spent about my first 11 years there. Um, My parents are from Honduras in Central America. No people. It's not a city in Mexico. I have gotten that. Uh, (laughs) A lot. You'd be surprised. A lot of people are like, Oh, so uh, you're Mexican, right? And I just go with it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm Mexican. Uh, I think in our unit, we only had one Mexican. Uh, yeah. Of Ray and yeah. I. yeah. 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 Actually, yeah. Uh, Cisneros. Um, and so I spent my first 11 years there. And then um, in 95, I believe it was. Uh, my dad was like, Hey, we're going to go back to Honduras. And I was like, okay, sweet. No, we're not going to fly there. We're going to drive there. And I was like, Oh, okay. So this was back in 95. Obviously there's not the restrictions going on as far as driving that you have now and all that stuff. Um, we first drove to Miami. Uh, I have family here. So we spend about, I don't know. I want to say, three to four days driving down here because at the end of the day you have an 11 year old you have I have uh, I'm the oldest of four so my brother at the time was four maybe six years old something like that and my two younger sisters were uh three and one so it was a lot of it was a lot of stop and go uh, a couple nights in different hotels we got down to Miami uh, spent about I want to say four days, five days here, just meeting family that I had never met. Um, and then from Miami, we drove back to Houston. Um, we also had family there. We probably spent like maybe a night there. Uh, what I remember was getting to Houston, the Mexican border at Houston, and we had to stay there for like two days because the um, 
the border patrol didn't want to let us through. They, I don't know, I guess I, they thought nobody just wants to drive out of the country. Everybody wants to come in. So we spent the whole day there just not doing anything. And I'm pretty sure my dad had to like bribe a couple of people just to let us through. That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so we went, we, uh, after doing that, we went to, we went through Mexico, the uh, coastline. Um, we ended up going to other, other little cities there. Um, I don't really remember much, but I remember it, it took at least a month to drive there because at the end of the day, logistically speaking, again, you had to stop and, take care of the the kids needs and and all that stuff and come up with other other logisticals like food and whatnot so it took us a good month to get there so we were in in a car for like a month that's nuts so you uh, left uh what was it new york city or just somewhere new no it was uh new jersey in newark oh newark i thought you said yeah. new york no okay. no no but you newark. drove basically from there to Miami and then back up and over to Houston, to the border in Mexico. And then, uh, we went down the, the coastline, uh, passing by all the countries there until we got to Honduras. So it was about a month. And I want to say, if I remember correctly, we, we did the, the trip in December, we spent Christmas in like, I think Guatemala or something like that in a hotel. And then um, we were in Honduras by New Year's, I think right the day after New Year's Day. So the second uh, in 1996, January how, 2nd. I wonder how many people do that trip backwards. Man, I, I don't know. I have no idea. I had, at least probably the other way around. Yeah, but not from here to your, your home country, basically. Uh, but were you born in Honduras or were, or were you born here? No, I was born in New Jersey. Okay. So you, first time ever going back there, I take it. Yeah. Yeah. It was a, it was a big culture shock for me um, because I'm, I'm first generation American. Like I don't have any other uh, relatives. Like I can't do the whole, Hey, my great, great, great grandfather is from America and he served in whatever war. And no, I, I don't do that. All my ancestors are from Honduras. Um, but it was a culture shock because when, when I got over there, I remember being met with, oh, um, you're not really one of us. You're, you're an American, you're a gringo, you know, and, uh, you, you can speak the language. Like I, I learned, I had to learn the, the dialect, not only the language, but the dialect, um, over there. And I, we spent a year there. So I, I went to a bilingual school over there in English and Spanish. So I had to learn all the subjects that you would learn here, but also in Spanish, uh, which technically wasn't a, a language I could dominate at the time. And I also, I went over there for my sixth grade year in elementary. So over there, you kind of have to learn the, um, the constitution over there, the, the what each, each thing means, each paragraph. Um, you have to pledge allegiance, kind of like what you, you used to do here in schools, but over there, it's a little bit more intense. Um, it's almost military fashion-esque. Um, and I had to learn all that stuff to, not only in English, but I had to learn it in Spanish to move on from sixth grade to seventh grade over there. 
Um, but I did all of that and I was still met with a lot of, Hey, you know, you're, you're, you're an American, you're gringo, you know, and, and all that stuff. Like that's one of the things I remember the most from my time over there was, yeah, it was a lot of, uh, I guess that type of racism, you know, that's crazy. So was, was it a stable country at that time? Um, I want to say it was a little bit more stable than what it is now. Um, I don't, I don't keep up with it now. Honestly, I haven't been back since 2007. I think I, I went back for a little bit just to visit family. Um, and from what I've heard, at least from what I remember, it was a lot more stable now than it was back then. Uh, you didn't have the the coup that would eventually happen over there and they ousted their president and then he came back in and all this other stuff. The constant protesting, not, not unlike, I guess, Venezuela and Colombia with their, um, I guess, dictators and whatnot. I think the only difference is, honestly, um, Honduras isn't officially a dictatorship. But other than that, like, I, I'll hear people bitching about government here, and rightfully so. Like, I'm, I'll be the first one to uh, advocate for a smaller government, but it's nothing like over there where you don't really have a, a First Amendment or even a Second Amendment. Like, over there, your right to bear arms is almost non-existent. Um, you, you're allowed a, a shotgun, I think, and you have to register it through the government. They issue it to you. They issue you. They issue the amount of ammo that you you can have at any given point, and I think it's only for like hunting and recreational uh, sports. And you have to do it within a specific time frame. Like you can't go whenever you want and be like, "Hey, I want a, a rifle. I want to buy a rifle." It has to be under their terms and whenever they say, and they have to register you and all that stuff. So uh, I think a lot of Americans just take for granted how things are over here. Yeah, you see that, especially now. But yeah. so yeah. you spent a year down there. So did you, did you guys come back up then? Yeah, so a little a little after a year, again, it was just, at least from my point of view, it was pretty random. My dad was like, hey, we're going to go back up. We're going to go back to up to America. And I was like, cool, um, but we're not going back to New Jersey. We're going to Miami. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, so... I think in nine, the end of 97, we came to Miami um, and it was a little bit more of a culture shock for me because at least in New Jersey, I didn't really experience any what you would think like, oh, like racism and stuff like that. When I started school down here, um, the first thing I got met with, with was, um, oh, you're, you're a cracker. And I was like, well, what does that mean? Like, I'm 12 years old and I'm like, I don't even know what that means. And I remember I had to look it up and it was like, oh, white skin, white American or whatever. And I was like, well, yeah, I'm not exactly white. What, what most people think of white. I'm not exactly that. I'm just light skinned. But yeah, I got met with a lot of that. I went to a, a middle school that was predominantly black and I, I didn't really care for like all the skin stuff and like oh uh, like I had black friends and all that but I got met with a lot of uh you're a white boy you're this you're you know you're you're basically one of them and you know it was it was a it was a learning experience for me you know how were you uh 
Because I know Miami is kind of unique where I grew up in California. It was all Mexican immigrants. My mom's whole side of the family is from Mexico, though some of them claim they're Californian because they've been there longer than California's was part of Mexico. <laughs> yeah, but I yeah. know from, from our unit, there were so many different people from the Latin America region. We had Cubans, we had everyone. Yeah, How we did had the other like, t- dominant Latin races treat you? Uh, no, pretty well. I mean, a lot of people thought I was, and still do, they still think I'm like Cuban because I, I physically, uh, I fit the mold, I believe it's like white skinned and I can kind of do the Cuban accent every now and then I've been living here, I don't know, 20 years plus. So I, I've picked up the accent a little bit. Um, but guys like, uh, Danny and his brother Nunez, the Nunez brothers, they, they can spot it a mile away. Like, well, you're not. Cuban, you know, um, but um, honestly, they treated me pretty well. Like I didn't, I didn't feel any us versus them type deal, uh, for lack of a better phrase. So when did you first get the military itch? So, uh, I wish I could say a noble reason, like you know, patriotism or nine eleven um, or generational service. Like I can't claim any of that. Um, when I first enlisted or looked into enlisting, honestly, my motivation was to get away from home. I I was basically running away from home. Um, I didn't have a rough childhood, but my parents, they, um, they shouldn't have stayed together as long as they did. And it showed in the relationship at home. There was a lot of infighting, fighting against each other. And uh, my siblings and I grew up with that almost kind of a toxic environment. And um, I knew college wasn't for me. When I was in my senior senior year of high school, I didn't see college, at least in my immediate future. And I was like, 9-11 had happened. And I remember... um, when it happened, I was in 10th grade. And I remember thinking there was talks. I don't know if you heard about it. I I know you were in the Navy, I think at the time, but I don't know if you heard as far as, uh, there was supposedly like, Oh, they were thinking of doing a draft because of what was going on. And, and I remember, you know, you, you talk with your friends and they asked me like, Hey, well, how would you feel if you were drafted? And I was like, better me than someone else, you know? Um, so I think that planted the seed, but it wasn't really, uh, I want to go fight for my country or for my loved ones or anything. I just wanted to get the hell out of home. Um, actually, initially, uh, I went to my recruiter and I was supposed to go in as a radio operator, um, active duty. And then of course I told, I come time for my parents to find out I was enlisting. They were not happy. Um, they, they did the whole, you know, you're going to go fight in a war for someone else and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I just, I want to go. And I remember my enlistment process was almost a year long. Uh, up until that point, I had issues with my knee. I had blown my ACL out. Um, I think when I was 14. So my recruiter for some reason was like, Hey, we need documentation stating that you're going to be able to handle all this. And I remember they sent me to like 
six different doctors, um, x-rays, MRIs, um, just to kind of have a paper trail. And that whole process took a year. So within that year, uh, I, I guess like eventually convinced myself, I was like, well, my parents aren't happy about me serving. And somehow, some way I found out about the whole reserve component. And I was like, well, I guess my compromise there could be, I'll do reserves instead of active duty. I'll do my weekend a month, one week uh, in the summer. And and that'll be that. And then I'll be a civilian um, the rest of the time. so I, I went to my recruiter and I told him about it. I'm like, Hey, I want to change my contract from active duty to reserves. And he was like, yeah, 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 no problem. And then like three weeks later, he calls me, he goes, so, um, we're going to have to change your ship out date. And I was like, why? He goes, Oh, someone took your spot. So if you want to remain a radio operator, you can wait another two to three months. And I was like, I had waited up to a year up until that point. I'm like, I don't want to wait anymore. Do I have any options? He goes, oh, we can put you in as a tow gunner and you can, you can keep your ship out date. And I had no idea what a tow gunner was. I didn't do any research. I was just like, yeah, yeah, sure. I don't care. And, and lo and behold, I, I enlisted as a 0352, um, met up with the first sergeant at that point with uh, the unit and that, and that was that, like, I, I spent about a year and a half just waiting to get into the, the, um, the pulley program. And, uh, after that, I would think, I think it was in debt for like two months and I left. Oh, wow. So when you, um, when you thought about joining, yes. What made you go to the Marine Corps or did you look at the other branches? I looked at the other branches, uh, ironically enough. I had picked the army first. I, I, I read about their, Hey, you can enlist at 17 years old with uh, parental consent and you can finish high school and it'll count towards your, your contract. And, uh, of course my parents, when it came time to sign off, they were like, Nope. So I was like, okay. I'm like, maybe it'll give me time to reflect. And I got a year to reflect and see if I really wanted to do, to join the military. And uh, when that, when my senior year of high school came around, um, I still wanted to do it. But for some reason, I, I didn't like how the Army recruiting process went about. And I was like, let me look at the other branches. I, I remember I looked at the Air Force. That didn't really interest me. Navy uh, wasn't really my thing. And then I, I guess I got hooked on the, the uh, Marine motto of uh, being a um, becoming better than what you are and challenging yourself. And I'm pretty sure the commercial got to me of the dude go climbing the mountain and picking up the sword and transforming. And I was like, Oh yeah, I'm hooked. That's what I want to do. So what year did you go to boot camp? Uh, 2005, November of 2005. So you have parents that weren't exactly thrilled about you going into the military. How was that ship off date? So I, re- I remember that month, I think the week before I shipped out, we got hit down here with a hurricane that year. Um, it wasn't really that bad. It was like a category one, but it did uh, shut down power in a lot of neighborhoods. And I remember my house didn't have power um, and I had to leave 
uh, the morning that I left at four in the morning, we had no power. And I had to, I think my parents were asleep that they were, they were pretty upset still. And I don't think I even said goodbye. I just kind of woke up my, my brother and my sisters and I was like, Hey, um, I'm shipping out. And they were like, okay, good luck. And, um, I remember when I made it to boot camp, when you have that call home, they have 30 or 40 seconds to call home. There was no power and we had a landline. So I had to fake my call. I faked the call home. And I was like, I just read whatever jargon they put up there on the paper and say, Hey, I'm okay. And I wasn't talking to anybody and I just hung up. <laughs> so what was the yellow footprints like for you? Uh, man, I don't, honestly, I don't remember a lot of it. It was a, a big blur. It was so fast. You hit the ground running and, I don't think I felt that I know some people have stated that in hindsight, they felt that almost weight of the, all the recruits that have gone before them on those, on those same yellow footprints. And I, I think I was so uh, focused in on the moment of doing what I needed to do and kind of getting a sense of things that I don't think I even thought of how I felt as far as standing in those footprints uh, along with everyone else. I was just like, okay, let, let's go, you know? I mean, were you used to, or did you know to expect all the yelling and screaming that came? Uh, I, I had, I had, I had kind of looked it up at that point. I think, um, there was very little footage out there at that time. Uh, but, but what footage there was, I, I think I got a good sense of the, what to kind of expect as far as the yelling and, uh, it wasn't really a shock to me like that. Um, I, I think my personality lends itself to not really uh, almost showing what I'm feeling, at least my face. Uh, I remember my drill instructors would get pissed off because they, they would yell at me. They they'd PT the hell out of me. And, um, and I needed a lot of, uh, what is it, incentive training, as, as they put it. Uh, oh, dude, I sucked as a recruit. I was horrible. And uh, but I never gave him that facial satisfaction of, oh, fuck, this sucks. And none of that. I think that's I, I, I don't know. At some point in the in recruit training, I said I, I suck balls, but I'm not going to give him that physical satisfaction of letting them know that I'm I'm, I'm scared out of my mind. Because, yeah, yeah, you do get I did get hit with that. Like, I'm like fuck, what the hell did I sign up for type deal? I think uh, after the second week, I was like, holy crap, I have 11 more weeks of this, you know? So how were you, were you physically prepared for it? All the push-ups? Oh, hell, no. hell, <laughs> hell no. Uh, I think uh, preparation for me was like, I was, I was pretty active. I was always pretty active growing up. I, I played soccer and, you know, cardio wise, I was okay. Uh, strength wise, not really. Um, but I did learn how to do pull-ups beforehand. Um, so I knew I can do the, the minimum, but as far as, um, being prepared to actually, um, go through the totality of, of the physical aspect of boot camp, heck no, no, no way. <laughs> So what about the, um, how are you on the range, on the rifle range? How was that for you? I, I sucked balls. Um, I had not, 
I'd never seen a gun up until that point, let alone shot one. Um, so I guess in hindsight, yeah, I, I didn't have any bad habits to unlearn, but it was, it wasn't like someone sat down and taught me, Hey, this is how you shoot a rifle. These are the basics up until that point. And I think he, I was learning things to kind of pass the, the qualifications and the tests, but I wasn't really learning to retain, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Totally. And, you know, I forgot to ask you, what coast did you go to for boot camp? I went to Paris Island, East Coast. I am so sorry for your life. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, again, I went in the winter, though. That's that's another thing. I, I think I've I've heard a lot of guys will go in the summer and I went in the winter. So it was a slightly different experience for me. Um, and I and I, I think the group that I went with was um, slightly older recruits. They were like mid 20s to 26 year olds from what I remember. So, yeah, that was a it was weird um, when I got out of boot camp and, you know, you hear the stories and. And they're like, oh, we went in the summer and it sucked balls and you got 18, 19 year olds. And I was like, I think I was like amongst the youngest ones there. And I was like 20 when I went to boot camp. And uh, yeah. And um, crazy. it was kind of weird. I mean, the whole thing was uh, in hindsight was weird, uh, even logistically. Like we had seven drill instructors, which the norm is like. I think four uh, at most. Um, but our platoon started off with seven drill instructors. And we I just thought it was the normal until you start seeing all these other platoons and they have less drill instructors than you do. And yeah, I wondered, like, what's that all about? Um, but eventually we ended up losing like two or three drill instructors. Um, I think we lost one right before the rifle range evolution. And uh, another one, I think he went to OCS out of nowhere. And I remember he came back to visit. Um, like, oh, I'm a first lieutenant now or whatever, or second lieutenant, I'm sorry. And, um, but yeah, we lost we lost like two or three drill instructors in the whole process. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. So I got to ask, because I ask everyone this. Um, here you are, 20-year-old Flores. You have... No idea what CS gas is like. So how was your time in the gas chamber? Sucked. It sucked. Uh, I'm like, uh, I can, in my head, you know, I think you kind of romanticize certain things about yourself in your head. And I think at that point I was like, you know what? I, I know I suck as a recruit, but I can will myself through this shit. Nope. Nope. I think um, the drill instructor, one of my drill instructors came when you're supposed to break the seal with your fingers, he grabbed my mask and just ripped it out of, out of my, my hands. And he's like, just stand there. And I was like, yes, sir. <laughs> and I can feel like I have, I, I don't know if it had anything to do with it, but I have bronchitis. So I can feel my airway starting to close up on me and I, I'm trying to gasp for air. There's tears rolling down on my face. And, uh, I start, I could feel the panic. You know what I mean? And, um, at the last second, I think the drill instructor came around and wham, slammed the thing in my face and I sealed it up again. And I was like, oh my God. And I remember when we when we left the chamber, 
I had snot coming down my face, red eyes, and I was puffed up, and I'm crying. And in my head, I'm like, um, in my head, I'm like, oh my god, why am I crying so much? Because you know, I don't know, I don't know any better. I don't know the, uh, the the effects of CS gas and all that stuff. And I'm like, what the hell, you know? It, it was a big blow to my ego at, at that point. So, did anyone try to bolt? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I think. I think had we spent 30 seconds more in there, I would, I would have been one of those who tried to bolt for sure. I think I was near the door too. And, and I remember out of the corner of my eye, I was like, I see the tears and on my eye, my vision's blurry, but I can see through my tears. I see the door on my left and I'm like, well, what would happen if I try to run out? <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, I assume something with a tackle involved. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think we had like three guys got, get tackled. Uh, when I was in it. Damn. So it's weird to even ask this question because we're in COVID world and boot camps don't have people come visit them for graduation now. Right. But did you convince your parents to come up to see you graduate? Um, no, I did the opposite. I think my mom wanted to. Uh, I think I, um, I told her, you know, it, it logistically, it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot of money involved for them. Like we didn't grow up, uh, with too much money and I, I knew more or less what their finances was. And I, I knew it was going to be like an arm and a leg for my parents to go up there. Um, at least that's what I told myself at the time. But in hindsight, I think I was, I didn't really want to see my parents there. I was, I was still upset that I was like, um, you know, I, I understand that you don't agree with my decision, but you could at least support me. And I think that was my way of kind of taking that out on them where I was like, just don't come. You know, uh, it's a lot of money. But honestly, I think it was. Um, yeah, I just didn't want them there. So after you graduate, you go to Toe Gunner School, yeah. which is where is Toe Gunner School? It's in Camp Lejeune in North Carolina. So you, you go to SOI for a school of infantry. And um, that experience for me was also weird. Um, it, I, I remember getting there and we, I ended up in receiving for like almost a good month before I got picked up by, by a company. And in a month, like all that rigid training and boot camp went out the window. Like I got lazy Um uh, because everyone else was lazy. I remember getting there and everybody was just like, they didn't give a shit. There was a lot of people there that were, I think, um, processing out for whatever different reasons that they have. And a lot of their attitude, um, rubbed off on me. Um, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that I, I feed off of the energy of other people in, in a group and if you're lazy and a shipper, then it's going to rub off of me for better or worse, you know? Um, and I remember by the time I got picked up uh, by a company, I think it was, I think it was Bravo company. I don't remember. Um, I was so almost out of shape and lazy that it was kind of like having to do that whole transition again, all over again for me physically. Um, and, and again, I just, I just sucked as a, as a academically, uh, I, I got dropped, I think twice in the whole process. So instead of being there for three months, I was there for close to six. 
Um, I, <laughs> I remember at one point the, uh, they have there. So there's two companies that pick up tow gunners. It's Bravo or Delta company, if I remember correctly. And I remember I ended up in Bravo initially. I got dropped to Delta. And when I got dropped from them, I ended up in Bravo company again. And I remember the, the sergeants were, I guess they were talking shit and they were like, man, we have this, this dude named Flores and he's just not getting it. And then the sergeant from, I think Bravo company was like, Flores, I think we had him too. And I remember they called me into the, an, an office. I don't remember what office it was. And I remember the two sergeants were there and they were like, basically like, what the, what's going on with you? Like, why are you, why are you a shitbird? <laughs> and I was like, I don't I guess academically, I'm just not, if, if I have time to do it my way, then yeah, I, I can, I can rise to the occasion. But if, if you're kind of giving me time limits and, and doing it in a timely manner, like I'm not, I don't do well with that. Um, and, um, I think I, I passed the last exam, which is, uh, you have to set up your, 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 um, your toe, you have to set it up with your, your crew. And I think I passed it my last try, the last second, I barely scraped by. So you finally graduate to school. So you've been on active duty for months now. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like going home? I got home. Um, my, at least personally for me, my, my parents were still in that toxic environment situation. So I wasn't happy to be home. And uh, when I reported to the unit for my first drill, they were like, oh, hey, uh, we're, we're deploying to Fallujah and you're going to go out. So I, I didn't technically get off of active duty. Like I think I had like a week off and they reactivated me to get on active duty to go to, I think it was, we went to, we went to North Carolina to do training with, uh, with second AAVs. Yeah, that was, uh, I got mobilized in June 1st, 2006. So I didn't meet up with you guys until we got out to 29 Palms. So I got off of SOI in June, that first week of June. I don't remember what day. And I reported to my unit, I think the following week. And that's when they told me like, hey, you're, you're, I think it was me and Perez. We both came out of the same platoon of uh, uh, SOI. And they both, they were told us like, hey, you guys are deploying with scouts. And they're like, okay. So um, what was the idea? What, what was, how did it feel knowing that you were now going to go use your training? Uh, I, I honestly don't think I thought about it too much. Um, I, I think a lot of what happened through boot camp and SOI uh, lingered in the back of my head. I was like, man, I, I, I was a sucky recruit. I, I sucked in SOI. Like, what what can I bring to the table um, in on deployment, basically? Um, and I and I think if I remember correctly, I remember th- I remember thinking, well, any any dangerous quote unquote dangerous situation that may come up, I'll just be like, yeah, I'll I'll do what whatever needs to be done. Like that was my way of. Uh, 
compensating for whatever I lacked, if it was in prac app or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, I think that's why when, when they were like, Hey, uh, when we were in Fallujah and they were like, Hey, uh, we need you to burn dogs. Uh, that first week we were in country and everybody was like, Oh shit. I, I don't know if this guy might blow up. And I was like, yeah, sure. I don't care. That was, yeah. that was my way of pulling my weight basically. I remember those days. So um, <laughs> let's go back well, to your mob. So you get mobilized, you meet Ray, who was my baby Gorman, mm-hmm. which is a really disturbing thought. Um, so Ray gets you guys all set up. You guys are out in North Carolina for a few weeks. So you literally, just, I just realized that you just literally went right back to Camp Lejeune. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember, uh, well, in hindsight now, I, I didn't get that reserve, reservist experience like that whole uh, doing three weeks of whatever it is you're doing on, on the civilian side and then reporting to your unit for drill. Like I didn't get that experience until well after we came back from Fallujah. I didn't know what that was like. And I, I think for me, um, like these guys, they had that time to build up their their relationship with each other and knowing who can do what 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 we who had what weaknesses and what who had what strengths and me and Perez were just kind of thrown into the platoon like all right find something for these guys to do and and I think for especially for me like I don't think I I felt part of the the platoon so to speak um it it was a weird space for me to be in because I knew in, in like when we were in Fallujah I knew that I could trust like I was with Husky and Boo Boo and and Icy and I knew I could trust them, but I don't think I ever let myself open up to them um, because I don't think I ever really felt a part of the platoon like that. Um, if I, if I'm being honest with myself, I think it was, uh, hey, whatever you guys need me to do, uh, whatever job, uh, I'll do it, but. I don't really think I felt like I could open up to any of any of the guys like that. I think at most, um, the Nunez brothers uh, really tried to um, kind of have that repertoire with me, and uh, I opened the li- I opened up a little bit to them, but nowhere near like like a lot of the other guys that I would see, like um, Molina and, and Guevara and and. Um, you know, like they all had their little relationships and almost clicks. Um, but I was just, I was just kind of the loner, I think at that point, especially when I was taken off and to do other things like, Oh, go be at the, at the COC or go do gym guard. Like I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was just kind of on my own doing my own thing. Yeah. I know we also had a really unique unit. Um, we had no officers, which was super bizarre. Mm-hmm. So our most senior person in our unit was an E6, a staff sergeant. I was an E5. Yeah. Our platoon yeah. sergeant, who is typically a gunnery sergeant, was a sergeant as well. And then mm-hmm. it got really crazy when we had two sets of three sets of twins. Or no, two sets of twins and a set of brothers. Yeah. Yeah. And then Perez was a cousin of one of the sets of twins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And our whole, 
to put that into context, our whole unit with me and Ray both attached were 31 people. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that happens anywhere. No, no. And um, it, I guess it was just the, um, it was a little bit of timing and honestly just dumb luck that I think the unit ended up that way. Um, uh, at, at, at the time, I think I was like, man, thank God we have Cab as the platoon sergeant because I probably would have punched Verdura at one point or another in the face, you know? Uh, and, and this was this is 20, 21-year-old me at that time. Now, you know, uh, 14 years later, uh, I know that my my outlook on everything was through the eyes of what, what I was feeling and going through. I didn't have the high, the, uh, the wherewithal to see things at the, uh, platoon commander level. Of course I didn't, you know, uh, now I, I would shake the guy's hand and say, Hey, how are you, dude? But at that time, if cap wasn't around, I would have punched him in the face. I would have, uh, cause there was plenty of times that I didn't say anything, but he, he would get on under my skin and I'd be like, I'm just going to end up punching this dude one day, you know? <laughs> so in your, in your head, um, again, 21 year old, you in your head, you just graduated boot camp. Yes. You are now a United States Marine who was a tow gunner. What did you think was going to happen mission wise versus what actually happened? Mission one. Uh, I thought I thought we were going to be doing a lot of foot patrols because that's what I was led to believe. Um, I remember those couple of weeks in when we went to Lejeune to link up with Second AVs. Uh, a lot of, at least from what I remember, a lot of it was based off of uh, foot patrolling and um, sweeping for IDs when you um, when you uh, at a stop. A vehicle checkpoint or whatever and you sweep around your area and um holding holding checkpoints was what at least what i remember was what our mission was supposed to be we're going to be doing a lot of foot patrols and if we set up for checkpoints um we're going to sweep the area and that's it um and yeah and then when we ended up getting over there it was the mission was completely different which was at least for me it was whatever. Like I, 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 I was, I, I think I still had that SOI experience of you're told one thing and minutes later it changes. So it was fresh in my mind. Uh, at least for me, I think it was, uh, Oh, okay. So it's, it's, it's the same as SOI and everything else. Um, if I remember correctly, I think a, a lot of the other guys that had been in longer than I had been. Yeah. They were like, well, what the fuck is this? This isn't what we trained for for um so i yeah, think i got that I, I got that impression too yeah but for me it was like okay whatever um it, it is what it is semper gumby <laughs> exactly that's the big thing is people forget that part the semper gumby thing yeah so uh our mission was as i call it as truthfully as possible was we were bait yes for sure um, I, I even, I think, uh, from what I remember, again, it's been 15, almost 15 years and I'm, I'm not above, uh, recreating certain things in my memory that can be different. But from what I remember, 
um, when we got into country and we did those first few missions with the the platoon that we were relieving, it, it was done a certain way. Um, and then when we took over the the MSR, uh, we were just kind of almost figuring it out on our own. Where they're like, all right, let's try this and let's try. Hey, hey Flores, get out of the vehicle and go. <laughs> go um make sure there's nothing in that in that dead dog or that that piece of trash over there in the corner make sure it's clear and um in hindsight I, I was i was like man and this took years and years of later for me to kind of digest in my mind but i was like dude i could have i could have bit the i could have bit the big one a lot of times a lot of times but Again, 21-year-old me, I'm thinking, man, this is this is like the least I can do. I, I suck at all these other things. Um, I suck on the on the on the 240 golf, on the Mark 19. Like I'm not really proficient on these things. This is like the least better me than someone else who can probably add more value to the platoon mission-wise. I was like, if I go out, I go out, but at least it's me and not someone else. I think that's how I saw it. Um, I think I, uh, I I almost confused recklessness recklessness with duty. Like I was just that was my way of performing my duty to the best of my ability was to be reckless. And I, and I remember the first time uh, we we came up on a on a dead I think it was a dead donkey, and I I'm in the back and I see he turns around he's like he gets off the radio and he goes man, I got to send you out there to clear that donkey. And I was like, okay. And, and he had this look of dread on his face. Like, I'm not going to be able to handle it. This guy blows up in front of me, you know? And I was just like, good to go. I'm, I'm, I'm your guy. I'll, I'll go do it. And I remember I, I got out of the Humvee. I walked up a couple of meters to the, wherever the, the dead donkey was. And, and I, I looked, the corner of my eye and I see I see behind me and I'm like what are you doing and he shut he goes shut the fuck up just clear the fucking donkey and I was like okay and I remember I grabbed the donkey slowly and I kind of looked at it and I'm like all right I'm I'm in I'm in this I'm at this I'm at this point where I have to turn it around to make sure it's clear and I remember I kind of turned to the side and I grabbed my balls for whatever reason. I just grabbed my balls with my left with my left hand and I turned it over and I went, I closed my eyes and I opened one eye and I was like, okay, there's nothing. And I remember <laughs> and I remember Icy going, ah, oh, fuck. And um Ferrer afterwards uh was like, dude, you're a fucking lunatic. And I and in my head I'm like, why? That was, that was my order. I was given an order. This was my task, you know? And, um, I, I, I throughout the whole deployment, I completely ignored and pushed back whatever fears I had in my head, because in my mind, it was about almost proving myself to the rest of the guys. I'm like, this is the least I can do. You know, I'm again, I'm not good at all these other things. If I'm being honest, I was pretty bad. Um, I'm sure with time and repetition, I, I would have gotten better at things, but we just didn't have the time. Um, and that's just not how things work, as, as you know. Um, so I'm like, 
that's the best I can, the least I can do is put myself out there like that. Um, So did you think, um, do you think, do you think you would have been, I don't want to call you reckless, but I remember a few incidences. Um, Do you think you would have been more cognitive of what was actually going on around you? Had you Um, drilled with them for a year prior to going over? Maybe. I'm going to, I'm going to lean towards no. And I say that because, um, a lot of how I grew up, I think like, I know a lot of people will be like, oh, because of my experience in, in the Marines or whatever service they were in, this is how I am now. But for me, I think the Marine Corps and my experience is kind of already, it exasperated what was already there. Um, um, I think if anything, it probably would have made me feel a little bit more part of the platoon and the team and and all that stuff. But I don't think I would have been necessarily aware of cognitively what was going on within myself. Um, just because that was the best way I could, I could, um, handle getting through all those situations was to just kind of ignore it. Um, and in my mind, it was all about not even the mission, but it was more about proving myself to the rest of my guys and, and for them to see like, Hey, he may have all these weaknesses, but he's still at, um, valuable to the platoon and to the team. So to answer your question, no, I don't, I don't think so. So during this time, right before right. we deployed, we got block leave. Um, I'm assuming you went back to Miami and you talk very fondly of your brother and sisters. How, how was it getting ready to tell them that you were going to war? Yeah. Considering you'd been um, gone for what, almost so a year? That, so what I remember was, and I, and I think I have to kind of um, go over the relationship I had with them. Um, I'm the oldest of four. So growing up at a very young age, I fell into that almost I'm, I'm another parent role because my brother is five years younger than me. Um, and my parents, you know, they were, they were always working. Like I think my, my parents worked at a factory a couple of years. My mom worked the day shift and my dad worked the night shift and, you know, any five, six-year-old at that point, you kind of see how tired they are when they get home and all of a sudden they have to be mom, they have to be dad. And I think for whatever reason, at five years old, I was like, I'm going to shoulder that responsibility of being the older sibling and almost take it to an, another level uh, I think in hindsight, it was a little unhealthy because I I didn't have that chance to be a kid, just just regular kid. I was always in my head um, saying, I, I'm, I'm the example. I have to sh- I have to set the example for them. Um, any anything that happens, it's on me. It's my responsibility. And I think I I, I view that as taking a little bit of a, the burden off of my parents um, um, to the point of 
if, if I had any issues going on, I wouldn't say anything because in my mind, I was like, why, why add to that burden of whatever they ha they have going on, whether it's financially, um, I knew their relationship between them two was very rocky. They were constantly fighting and, um, you're gonna have to, you're gonna have to pull me back. What was the question? I kind of ranted on there. I was just asking whether or not, um, how it was saying goodbye to your little brother and sister. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so, um, with them, it was, it was like, Hey, uh, I gotta, I gotta go on deployment. I'm going to Iraq. Um, I didn't sugarcoat it and they were, they were, they were afraid, but I can, I can sense the support. And I remember along the same vein, um, telling my parents and my parents were almost devastated. Uh, they, uh, they were not supportive at all. Uh, I think it was the first time I saw my dad cry and I didn't know what to do. It flipped me out because my here I am, my dad, my whole life up until that point, never really showed his emotions like that. He never really cried in front of us, never really was even sad in front of us. And I remember seeing that and, and it was so impactful for me. I was like, my my instinct was to go in for a hug. And he 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 shoved me and he said, No. This is because of you, and unfortunately, um, I'm the one that has to stay here and take care of your siblings. So I can't, I can't be sad right now. And he he totally he totally rejected my hug, and and I remember that was it was a very for me it was a powerful experience that I think translated to how I almost kept people at a distance, even even when I joined the unit. And I think it goes back to that feeling of, I don't feel like I'm a part of the group because honestly, a lot of it was my doing where I kind of kept everyone at, at arm's length. Like I didn't really talk to much anybody. Um, maybe the Nunez brothers, um, Perez every once in a while. I think, I think you and I maybe had a conversation once or twice. And I think, um, Molina maybe might have talked to me a couple of times, but that was about it. So, but to answer your question with my siblings, it was, it was really, it was almost a sigh of relief. Like they, they, you could see that pride on their faces. Um, they were proud of me and they were worried about me obviously, but they were proud. But I think it was unfortunately overshadowed, overshadowed by my parents, I guess, reacting how any parent would, um, when their son says, Hey, I'm, I'm going to war. <laughs> Up until that point in time, uh, when you left, had they ever seen you in uniform, your parents or your kids or your siblings? Uh, I think, uh, the only time they saw me in uniform was when I came back from boot camp on leave and you, you have your service A's on and that, I think that was the only instance that they saw me with my uniform on. Oh, okay. So there, there was, there was a lot of disconnect then. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, we had an interest, <laughs> we had an interesting trip just getting to Iraq. If you remember that part. Mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, bit, bits and pieces, but I, I do remember, um, 
Dude. We, we were late by a day. Yeah, we were, <laughs> we were, <laughs> we were late by a day. Uh, the next thing I remember, I'm sure that a lot happened before that, but I remember the, uh, the emergency landing in, um, where was it? I think it was in Hungary. Hungary. It was in Budapest. Yeah. And I remember, I, I think I was like half asleep and I don't I don't I don't know if you remember this, but did an alarm go off in the airplane? Like, hey, and then the, the captain's voice was like, hey, we're, we got to make an uh, emergency landing or something like that. It, it, if I remember right, it was more of a shutter shake and then an alarm. Like, yeah, I, I think yeah. we lost. An, I think we literally blew up an engine. Oh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have been surprised. But again, my mindset was like. Oh, okay. Uh, just another thing that kind of happens. <laughs> I remember looking out the window as we were landing and the entire runway was lined up with fire engines. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I remember all the lights. Um, and again, and it, all of this is like in hindsight where you're like, holy shit, we almost bit the bullet and we didn't even make it anywhere near to where we were supposed to be going. But at the time I was just like, Eh, okay. Well, nothing happened, so we're good. <laughs> I mean, I, I, in my case, I should have taken that as a uh, a premonition of something to come from the deployment. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think. At least for me, I don't think I, I was in that mindset of well, this might be a sign of things to come. You know. Yeah. So, did you come over on the? Were you in the first bird? leaving to go uh, to Fallujah or were you the second group? I don't, I don't remember. I think I might've been on the second bird, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't tell you. So we got to the uh, TQ and then we convoyed over that night. Yes. Yes. I remember that. Uh, uh, I, I think that was my first instance of almost, um, I'm sure it wasn't the first time I was afraid, but it was the first time that I was aware of it. I remember um, at one point, I, if I remember correctly, they were like, hey, go to condition one. And, you know, we went to condition one or whatever. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is it. You know, the, we might, we might, get, we might get into a firefight in this tin can on wheels and I can't see shit. <laughs> Yeah. So for people who don't know, uh, condition one is when you have your rifle magazine in, round in chamber, locked forward, ready to go. Weapon on safe, or actually, I think it's weapon safe as off. Uh, it, it's weapon on safe. If I if no, you're right. Weapon on safe. Um, but it, so it's you're expecting something to happen. Yes. Um, and and I remember I was on. I was on pins and needles and I was like, uh, fuck, like what, what do we even do? Uh, like, cause I remember thinking like, that was my first time convoying anywhere. Um, and I remember thinking like, what's, what's the procedure here? If we get into a firefight or like what, like none of that was really explained, at least not to me that I remember. And I remember thinking like, okay, I guess if we get into a firefight, I'll, I'll try to listen for orders and, and look at the guy next to me and see what the hell they're doing. Other than that, I had no idea of what to do. Um, and I remember kind of almost expecting a firefight to happen and 
the longer we drove, the more I was on pins and needles until we ended up at uh, Camp Volusia. Agreed. How much, how close did that pins and needles feeling feel like you, when you were in the gas chamber? Oh, I think, I honestly think it was, it was worse because even in the gas chamber, you kind of have a little bit of sense of control, at least for me. Um, but being in that, in that convoy and it was my first experience in a convoy and being so close to other Marines, like you could barely move around and, uh, you get that order to go condition one and you don't necessarily see anything. And it it was very, I want to say almost humbling. Like it was like, okay, like you could really get fucked up here and you don't have, you don't have any control over it. You, um, whatever happens happens and you can, the best you can do is kind of react and hope that you react in a efficient manner. Agreed. I, I, I know the part that stuck out for me was is when we drove through the center of Fallujah. There was yeah. this yeah. terrifying in its own weird yeah. way. Cause you didn't know where anything was going to happen or what would have happened. No. And I think it was the only bit of communication that I remember getting was, Hey, we're going through downtown Fallujah right now. And I was like, holy crap. Uh, Again, I was just expecting something to happen. And And by that time, the Battle of Fallujah had happened. So you knew that there was all the shit that had happened there. It was, in a weird way, almost historic to drive through the middle of Fallujah. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I honestly wasn't thinking about the the history about it and all that. In my mind, I'm thinking, man, we're going to get effed up. We're going to get messed up here and... And I remember thinking, damn it, I don't know what to do if something happens. But the best I could do in my mind at that point was um, I'm like, okay, I'm going to look to the right and left of me and go from there. And thankfully, nothing happened. So I don't know if you remember this, but the night that we got over to Camp Fallujah, we got into our cans. um, For lack of a better way of describing them, they were literally uh, metal boxes with racks inside of them. Um. We took a mortar attack. Yeah. Uh, If I remember correctly, either they didn't explain to us what what was like the SOP for mortar fire, or they had just barely scraped by kind of telling us, hey, this is what you do when this happens, when the alarm went off. And I, (laughs) I remember, I think it was me and I think Husky and I don't know who else. We went into the bunker and we're like, holy shit. And we look around us and it's like dead quiet. No one's outside. No one's in their, their little bunkers. And I think at that moment we were like, oh, this is bullshit. You know, <laughs> I, I know Ray and I got underneath the bed. <laughs> no, we, we had the wherewithal to make it outside and get into the bunker. <laughs> so well, the, I was following, a lot of times I was following Ray's lead because Ray uh, was one of those corpsmen who had just gotten back from a Fallujah deployment with 511, mm-hmm. was going to be demobilized back into the civilian world and managed to convince him to keep him on for you guys. So that's how, was though he was junior oh, wow. to me, I tap to him for shit like that because see, see I, I didn't even know that all these years later and I'm just now finding out about this I didn't know he had uh, he was there prior well you do know he was fat yeah <laughs> which ultimately saved his life 
Yes, and we'll get to that because I, 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 I think there's I a am, lot to know. I am of the belief that that ultimately saved his life. I agree. Um, so speaking of saving lives, I forgot whether, did you go out with us, um, with me, Aoki, and everyone else on that first mission when we did the side, the left, right? Were you on that one? Because you were a driver at that point in time. I might have been... Uh... Actually, I might have been, but honestly, I, I wasn't a driver. Um, I was always 95% of the time, I was, a, I was just an extra body in the back. I thought, I thought you were, a, I thought there was one point in time when it was me, you, Cisneros, and Aoki. So, and you were driving. so, um, that was later on, I think. It was one of the night missions that we did. And I oh, remember, okay. I, th I think what happened was Molina was down or something like that. It was either Ferrer or Molina or both. Um, their vehicles got hit with IEDs and they were, you know, they did the whole, you can't go outside the wire for a week or two. And I think I was... Uh, I was in your guys' vehicle. Initially, I was a gunner. And for that night mission, I think they put Cisneros on the gun and they had me driving. Yeah, because I remember that. And I, I, maybe my mind's playing tricks on me, but I think I remember our first firefight and you were up in the gun. And if I remember right, you forgot your glasses. Uh, Dude... Uh, that, I, I specifically remember that, something about that. That could have been the case. I don't remember. Um, what I remember from that first firefight, it was it was like a and and for context, I know the movies will kind of Hollywoodize what firefights tend to be, and I remember most of the firefights we got in at least second section. It was mostly pop pop where the hell did that come from? And just kind of guesstimate what, which direction the fire was coming from and just kind of shoot. Um, and I remember that if, if that's the time you're talking about, yeah, I was up on the gun and I think, I think uh, Molina's Humvee was next to us. We might've been on a security stop or something. I, I think so. It was, it was a day that, um, Husky shot the guy in the head. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I was, I was up on the gun and either before, either before or after Husky, yeah, shot the guy on the gun, uh, on the head. Um, I remember, uh, Ayoki was like, Hey, uh, shoot at one o'clock. And in my head, I go, oh, my God, I don't know what I don't know what one yeah, you, you turned it like 10. You were aiming at Cab's vehicle. Well, no, no. Well, I I turned around. I flagged Cab's vehicle. I remember that I flagged him. And in my head, I'm going, fuck, I shouldn't have done that. But I'm like, fuck it. I'm already halfway through the turn. Let me just keep going. And I remember. I was deathly afraid and I'm telling you deathly afraid because I'm like, I can't identify what's at one o'clock. I don't see, all I see is buildings. 
And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill somebody who I'm not supposed to kill. That was my thought. Cause I can't, I can't positively identify what's at my one o'clock, 500 meters down. I can't, I can't see it. All I see is buildings. And I remember I was like, Molina, are you sure he said one o'clock? And I think he, he heard Molina, where's one o'clock? And I was like, he was like, oh, that way, you fucker, that way. <laughs> well, I, I remember uh, whoever it was in the driver's seat took you out of the gun because you and I had to go get ammo. Yeah. So eventually, yeah. Um, it was I remember severe. both of us a little nervous with the getting the ammo out of the trunk because we couldn't get that slider so, open. Right. So after after we we made contact and we engaged, uh, I think what happened was the uh, the fifty cal jammed, and I was trying to unjam it, and I'm racking it, and I'm racking it, and nothing. So it was Cisneros. Cisneros gets on the Humvee tells me to get down. He's like, I'll take care of it. And he's unjamming it. So, so, um, Ayoki's like, Hey, get more ammo. That's when he told us to get more ammo. And yeah, I remember it was one of the, it was one of the first times I felt not fear, but I was nervous. I remember my, my hands were like all sweaty and I'm like trying to get the, the freaking ammo can. And I'm like, and you're, I think you at one point told me like, dude, calm down it's okay <laughs> well because we we initially try to get the slider inside the humvee that gets the trunk open yeah but that was jammed for whatever it was jammed it was yeah and then yeah. it was like we're we're getting out of our nice little armored thing going think, to the back around the back and i think you climbed into the trunk yeah i was like screw it because we, we don't have shut the trunk on you yeah and i got the trunk shut on me mind you uh I think my hand was still in the trunk and it slammed right on my finger. And I, it, to this day, it's still like popped out of place. I don't know if you see that little bump right here. Damn. Yeah. It's like, it got weird. It got fractured in a weird place. Um, but I remember, I didn't even feel it. I was so adrenalized. I, 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 didn't even say, feel I don't it. remember that. I didn't remember you getting smushed. Yeah. I, I came up to you afterwards and I was like, Hey, I don't know what's going on here, but I know I didn't have this bump on my finger and it was basically my bone out of place. And you go, hey, it'll be fine. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> I don't remember that I, at all. Oops, I, my bad. No, no, no. But I, I almost didn't want to say anything because I'm like, it's my, it's my little finger. It's like, it's not like I got shot or anything. It was in my mind, it was almost dumb. Um, later on in the, in the few weeks after that, it really messed with my grip. Um, so I should have said something because it, I couldn't grip much of anything without it popping out of place again. So I kind of had to let it heal for a little bit. And I kind of did everything one handed for a while. Uh, if, if I was outside the home, be, um, putting lighter fluid on a, on a dead dog or, a or a donkey or, or just clearing something. I was always doing it one-handed for like, I want to say two weeks before it stopped hurting. So let, let's explain this real quick. So people understand that we, we were just not being masochistical and burning <laughs> dead animals for the sake of burning dead animals. Yeah, no. The reason why we did that was because the insurgents would use uh, 
anything from a dog to um i've heard stories in retrospect where they use dead bodies but donkeys to put ieds in dead bodies um anything from like a what you wouldn't think of like a uh a a cardboard box or uh they would dig holes the uh the msr was so messed up and riddled with potholes that they would just redig those whole holes up um, put an ID in there and uh, cover it back up, or sometimes not even cover it, just leave it like that. Um, I remember burning a lot of, uh, again, uh, dead dogs. They were already dead. Um, donkeys. Um, I don't think I ever disposed of a, uh, a a dead person. I don't think I ever did that. I don't think we had that on our, as no. far as I know. No, no, at least not our section. I don't know first section maybe, but... Um, you know they had the they had the special operations going on there. <laughs> so uh. we, the, we got there in October, uh, like October second or or somewhere around there, like early October. We get into November and we get beer for the Marine Corps birthday, which was hilarious. And then and, never and again. Lo- and lobster, if I remember correctly. Uh, you could call that lobster or steak. I will call that whatever, whatever, it whatever. Was. It was supposed to be fancy. And I remember taking a, a little bite and I was like, nah, I'm good. I'll stick to my cheeseburger. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was an interesting first month. I were you with us the night that um, the second tracks CEO uh, Major D came out with? Uh, I remember he came out with us a couple of times. Um, this one was like a handful of times. So I, I'm pretty sure I was there for most of those. Well, this was the first time we took a hit. Um, From an IED. Was that the one my vehicle was in? Lead vehicle? Yeah, I think it was. Yeah, it was first vehicle. Okay. Um, so I was, yeah, I don't, I think it blew up early. I don't think it actually hit the vehicle. Um, no, then, then ours was probably the one after that. Um, okay. ours, ours was the one when we made that turnaround to go back down the MSR and, uh, it, it hit right between my seat and, uh, ICC right in dead center in the middle. It went off. Um, maybe a couple of feet, not underneath the Humvee, but a couple of feet to the side. Okay. That may have, that may have been it. Is, it that, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. It was at night, right? Yes. Yeah. Cause he was in the vehicle with me. No, actually, no, it was, it wasn't at night, but it was towards the end of the patrol. So probably. Okay, no, that then, yeah. The one that we specific, that I'm specifically talking about was at night. I thought that was the first one we hit. No. I mean, when it's all said and done, we got hit. <sighs> a lot of times. A lot. So I've had some counseling and for TBI and stuff like that. And one of the counselors said, well, how many times, how many times did you guys get hit? And I'm saying this to you for, if you're uh, working on any TBI stuff, I said, just the big one was the, the main one. She's like, well, how many times did you have an explosion of significant size go off within a hundred yards of you? And I started doing the math. I think we got hit like 13 or 14 times by that metric. 
I, I would agree. I've, I've done some TBI stuff. I've done counseling. Um, and I, I think initially I was also of the, you know, I'm just counting the big ones, at least the ones I was involved in. I was involved in what I would say one direct one and two that kind of went off relatively far away from us, but it, you still kind of felt it throughout the Humvee. Um, and my counsel at the counselor I had at the time was like, okay, but yeah, same thing. Um, what were you involved in any that just kind of blew up and you might, you, you physically didn't feel anything, but there was like a, at least a shock wave. And when I started thinking about it, I, at least from what I remember, I was like, yeah, it was a, a lot, a lot, almost every single vehicle in both sections was hit at one point or another directly and indirectly at least half a dozen times. Yeah. It's easily that. Um, easily. So where I was going with the whole November thing was, so we got our beer and then Ray got shot. Right. Were you, do you remember that day? So, um, I, don't remember when he got shot. Um, I might've been at the COC pulling duty there. Um, the, the instance that sticks out to me when uh, second AAVs had that week where they lost like two, three Marines back to back. I remember that. The, uh, I think the first guy's name was Tillery. Yes, yes. And um, he, he was one of the... So I always tell people with war, there's some really bizarre shit that happens. I don't know what you saw of the day that we had uh, my incident, but I don't I'll, I'll, get, I'll get to that because I remember exactly where I was. I don't think under normal circumstances, I should be having this conversation with you. But then you have the Tillery guy who apparently from what um, the corpsman was telling me was his helmet was like a quarter of an inch above where the little AAV where you can stick your head out. Right. And an IED goes off a hundred yards away. And it just so happens that somehow a little piece of metal slides into that slit and hits him. Yeah. Uh, that's exactly what I remember hearing. I think if I, I don't know how my mind kind of rationalized that at that point, but I think I saw him at the chow hall um, the day before. Um, because when I, I remember hearing what happened and I didn't recognize his name, but when I saw his picture, when we, when we went to the, uh, I guess the, the viewing that they had or the, whatever. The memorial. The memorial. Um, I remember I saw him the night before at chow hall. And I remember kind of taking pause at that and, and thinking like for a few seconds, I was like, I literally saw this guy less than 12 hours ago and now he's dead. And not only is he dead, but he died doing basically the same job that we were all doing, except he was in a, he wasn't in a Humvee. He was in a, a in a track. So, um, to, so people who don't know when, when Will and I were downrange, we were assigned to what was called team Gator. We weren't assigned necessarily to one unit. Team Gator was developed to be what they, they classified as a counter IED patrol. Our mission was to ride around and literally do circles in a certain section of road on MSR Mobile. That unit 
itself, Team Gator was made up of a company from a track unit, which is the big amphibious assault vehicles that come in from the ocean. They look like, if you watch Star Wars, the original New Hope, it was it looks exactly like what the Jawas drive around yeah. in. Yeah. And then you had a platoon from First Tank's tow uh, platoon, and then Fourth Tank's scout platoon. So we were, we all fell under the COC, the Combat Operations Center of Second Tracks. But tow did tow, scouts did scouts, and tracks did tracks. Very rarely did we know anyone from the other two units. Which it kind of presented a almost a kind of a weird dynamic where initially, at least for us, we're all tow gunners by trade. And now we're scout platoon. So I don't remember if you remember how sometimes we'd go to like on on the workup to the deployment. Like when we went to 29 Palms, they thought we were scout sniper platoon. And we're like, no, no, we're scouts. We're scout platoon, you know? And uh, yeah, I, I, and it's I, weird. It's weird because we're all, we're all 0352s by trade. So we're, we're like, we're tow gunners, but we're not calling ourselves tow gunners. We're in scout platoon. Well, I think I had the conversation either with uh, Cab or with Stone, who explained to me, well, we're kind of the snipers of the tank world. We go out ahead of the tanks so the tanks are safe, and then we go shoot them with toes. Like, I, I, um, armor versus armor versus armor versus thin-skinned Humvees back then. No. No. I, <laughs> I think it was Stone, because I think he might have told me the same thing. I, I do remember him. For whatever reason, if it wasn't him, I remember... I remember it's something they're taught. Yeah, hearing that in in his voice, and I feel like that's something Stone said. But yeah, it does. It totally feels like a Stone thing. Um, how I kind of try to explain it to people when they do ask me what what an MSR is, at least for us over there, I kind of try to tell them it's kind of like I ninety five if it had uh, four to five lanes across going in each direction without anything in the middle, any median or anything. Very few spots had like a, a dip for a median or anything like that, where you can just kind of turn around at the, at, at, at the end and go back the opposite direction. That's kind of the visual I try to give people. Sometimes they get it, sometimes they don't, but it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to explain. Well, to oh, me, what? oh, I was going to say to me, it was striking on how minus the pot. Well, okay. In San Antonio here, mobile actually seems better than highway 35 or than I-10. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it, you would think it's, uh, oh, you know, we're in a shithole country and it, it's, it would be crappier than what it really was. Like it really wasn't that bad. It, you know, minus all the uh, IEDs that would go off. True. And thank God none have ever gone off here. So yeah. So we were talking about uh, Ray getting shot. Mm-hmm. Um, he was with the other section, so first section. Right. Do you remember the story? Uh, the only thing I remember, and I don't know if I was told the whole story, was they were on a on a security stop. They were they set up a checkpoint somewhere i don't i don't remember exactly where i probably was told where my memory is just shot these days and from what i remember um he was kind of 
on the walking around outside at the high ready with his rifle. So the high ready for the people that don't know is the buttstock of the rifle is right across your chest at the high, at a high angle. And uh, the sniper shot at him, shot through the bolt, the carrying handle, the bolt carrier and the bolt destroyed it and slipped into the, that, that slit that the, the armor in our flak jackets doesn't cover. Right. So he, so the story I got was he, they were in a little city, a little town, I mm-hmm. think it was called Sacawea. And yeah, yeah. They, right. He had walked around a corner, a car had driven by, and he was in the same position you were in and he took a knee and the car actually backed up and shot him. Like he was full on drive by knowing Ray, that just seems so appropriate for the way that he got shot. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it was insane that it went through the entire upper receiver. Like you said, the bolt, the bolt carrier came out and missed his body, missed his sappy plate by like quarter of an inch, but his fat ass saved his life. You, it's one of those kind of like the, uh, that mystery bullet that killed JFK. You can't, explain it like i mean i i i don't think i got that story of the the drive-by i think for whatever reason if i didn't if i got that story for whatever reason my memory of it was being told that he got shot by a sniper that it it was it was a sniper shot but i (laughs) he he often reminds me that he uh got shot in the (laughs) drive-by okay so um but, but do you yeah. remember what do you do you remember uh what the reaction was when that came over the comms? Dude, uh I couldn't I couldn't tell you. Were we were we were waiting to go out or were we already out? We were I, we I think we had the day off that day. I think I think that's what it was. I remember I think it took a while for me to find out um that he had been shot. I think by then, by the time I find out, I found out he was in already almost out of surgery, if I remember correctly. Yeah, because I walked out of my can and saw a cab and he's like, Doc Costas got shot and walked by me. That was like the whole, I was like, wait, yeah. what? That, that, that <laughs> so, sounds about right. Yeah. So I ran over to the RAS, told the, the surgeon and we met him over at Fallujah Surgical. Okay. I don't do do you remember what we did a little bit later in the day? I I don't know if I was doing something else at the COC or something. I don't remember even seeing him. I don't think I went to see him for because I was busy doing something, some dumb duty thing that I had to do, probably. Um but since we're on the subject now, it's like and I don't mean to kind of divert a little bit, but I remember some of the COC stuff that I would do. And I remember thinking like, man, this, this is so stupid that I'm doing these things in a combat zone and I'm not even armed or anything. I don't have my rifle on me, you know, me, me thinking 21 year old, uh, I think Lance Corporal at that time, I got promoted in, in country. And, um, I'm like, I remember just thinking, I'm not out there with my, with my guys, with the rest of the guys. I'm back here doing some stupid errand, um, a messenger type stuff. And I'm like, at the time, I remember 
I was, it chapped my ass having to do all that stuff. Like I'd rather be out outside the wire with my guys. Yeah. So you uh, may not have, you may not have come out with us when um, we got the word that we were going to go find out who the fuck shot Ray. I probably and blew up the house. Was it when we, now there was, I remember there was a time, it might've been when the three Marines uh, got killed when we went into that little town and we did a couple of uh, almost foot patrols and we, we did some entries. That, uh, that was, that was for Ray when we went to that little okay, town and no. then they ended up blowing up the house. Yeah. Okay. So I was there for that. Yeah. I was carrying around the saw. Okay. Yeah. 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 The, uh, I think everyone came out to play. I think we had some infantry guys come out. We had uh, both toe, toe platoon. Yeah. The tracks came out. The they, tanks came was, out. Yeah, now I remember. It was a joint thing. And I remember it was one of the few times, again, that I thought, we're going to get fucked up. <laughs> we're going to get screwed up because they know we're coming for them. They know, they know exactly what we're doing. And I remember thinking, well... If this is where I get messed up, then hopefully it's not bad enough that I that I can't perform my duty. Even at that point, I was still, if I get shot at, hopefully I can get patched up real fast by by you and still continue my 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 job there so that you know in some way, shape, or form, I can help the rest of the guys out. So, yeah, I mean, because then then we ran into after Ray got shot, the period that you were talking about with the guys who were from tracks getting killed. Yeah. And, and I think we did a night mission in the back of a track into Fallujah at one point in time. So, so um, we went to the memorial for the Marines. Right. And we we paid our respects and all that stuff. And then we got hit with indirect fire. I remember that. Yeah. And then it went, it went from we're semi mourning these Marines, not because we didn't want to mourn them, but at the end of the day, we're still in the middle of uh, Fallujah. And at least for me, my mindset was I can't really mourn too much because we got to go out in a bit. And then we got hit with indirect mortar fire and we were, and it was like quick. It was like, all right, get your shit on. We're, we're gonna go. We're gonna go take the fight to them. I remember someone uh, might have been the CEO. We're gonna go take the fight to them. And I remember again thinking, "All right, well, looks like this is where I get fucked up." <laughs> you know, <laughs> that seems to be a running th- a running thing. But yeah. hey, the um, <clears throat> the nutty thing was the fact that we were in the middle of that ceremony and we got hit. And I think. So I don't know if you remember when we first got to Fallujah, the incoming alarm was the old school Claxton. Somewhere around that time, they changed the disembodied voice of incoming, incoming. Do you remember? Yeah, Yeah, I remember that. And and we were all like, uh, uh, because no one gave us the memo and we were like, what? Like, is are we really getting incoming or what's going on? And I remember... I think Marines started running out of the building and they were like, what the hell are you doing? Get back in here. Like we're, we're in a fortified structure. Don't be stupid. And everybody ran back inside to like one side of the building. Uh, yeah. Cause I remember looking out the window behind us cause we were in the chapel and it was kind of like stadium seating. Yeah. 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 One of the, one of the roof tiles blew out right either in my row 
over or the row in front of me slightly over and from the blast on the roof. Well, but I remember getting up and looking out the back window that you could oversee the, uh, the courtyard and there were Marines out there and you could see blasts going off. Yeah. And I remember seeing debris fall, uh, near where I was sitting it was. It wasn't a ton of debris or anything, but yeah, you could you could visually vis, uh, visually see it. Um, there were just pieces of tile and dust everywhere, and I remember um, shortly after that they were like, "Everybody, run to to your gear. We're we're heading out. You know, we're um, all of us, the whole company. We're like we're we're heading out." Yeah, I remember that too. So we roll into December and. Those two, I think it was two more Marines were killed within, like you said, a week or two weeks. Yeah. Then it kind of quieted down. And I don't know, you, do you remember our New Year's Eve? Uh, I'm pretty sure we were patrolling MSR South at night. Yeah. And I, re I specifically remember because in Aoki's vehicle and we called in, uh, we found an IED right outside of Abu Grave. Mm -hmm. And so my recollection is we had the last IED find of 2006 in the first controlled debt of 2007. Yeah, yeah. But it also was interesting, and I like bringing up weird shit about war, but it was also interesting because we had just done the turnaround. So we were facing Camp Fallujah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this part, but when they said Happy New Year's and all the batteries at Fallujah started shooting off uh, illumination rounds. I remember that, and I remember thinking, only in Iraq, baby. <laughs> I remember it was over the radio. I was, I, I'm pretty sure I was in the back of the Humvee monitoring comms, and I remember it. I was like, hey, Happy New Year's, and ba -da -ba 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 -ba. and I was like, it, it kind of brought a smile to my face. I was like, you know what? It's, it's fitting. It, it it was surreal. I mean, for yeah, lack of it, a better word, I, yeah. and it reminded me of some of the stories that you hear about the Vietnam guys. Yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah and for me, it was here. I am a twenty-one year old. I don't, I don't know much about the world, but we're celebrating New Year's in in Iraq, and we're having all these all these things going on. And it was it was pretty. In hindsight, it was pretty cool. I don't think at the at the moment I was aware of how I felt, but yeah. Right. No, I mean, I, and that's a good thing is we can have these conversations all these years later and like look back on them. So we go into January, which then we have the changeover from RCT5, who seemed to be the cool kids, and then to RTC6, which were kind of the assholes. Right. Um, I think that's when I start, when they had me doing um, gym guard, I think. When, when they did the changeover... I remember that's when I started pulling in my mind, even, even dumber things than I was already doing. I was like, they were like, okay, we need an extra body and you're the extra body. So you're going to do gym guard. And again, I was, I was, you know, out outwardly, I was uh, Roger that that's, that's my job. But inwardly, I remember I was, I felt a lot of almost anger, like, my my guys are out, are are out there and I'm I'm not there you know um uh to your point when when you guys when you got hit with the uh 
the S Vibid, I wasn't there. I was pulling guard at the gym. Oh, were you? I thought and you were. Like, no, no. I, I for some reason, and you're not the first one to tell me that. But for some reason, people think I was there and I wasn't. And I remember my shift was always overnight. So I had pulled that shift for about three weeks, I think, up until that point where I was staying up all night back to back, just kind of sitting there doing fuck all, you know. And I think um, when I would get off and get to my tin can, um, you guys were getting ready we're always getting ready to go outside the wire and i remember what i would do was i would kind of stay up a little bit just to see everyone off and then i i'd hit the sack and go to sleep or try to go to sleep and then like an hour later uh boo boo and husky just uh opened the door to the tin can hard like bah! and husky goes wake up fucker uh Doc, Doc got hit by a suicide bomber. And I thought he was messing with me. I'm like, what? Like, what, what do you guys, in my head, I'm like, man, has it been, has it, has it been, um, whatever, however many hours for patrol that it was at that point. Uh, I'm thinking in my head, man, it's already been eight hours. I don't feel like I slept anything. And then Boo Boo walks and he goes, no, for reals. Um, we, we got hit by a suicide bomber and uh, Doc and Ferrer are, in, are in, the, in the hospital or whatever. So I remember waking up and putting my, my cami. I think I put my camis on or my flight suit. I don't remember which. Um, and I went over to see Ferrer. And I remember the poor guy, his eyes all red, bloodshot. He's all screwed up. And I remember thinking, oh, I had two thoughts. My first thought was, I, I asked him, I was like, hey, buddy, are you okay? He's like, yeah, 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 I'm good to go. But you could tell he was visibly rocked. My second thought was, these motherfuckers, I, they have me pulling gym guard, and I wasn't there when this, when this whole thing went down. And I was so upset. I didn't, I didn't say anything because at the end of the day, um, you, you got orders to follow, and those were my orders. But I was so pissed. I was... To no end, I was pissed. And I think I told Molina, I think I was so pissed that if I remember correctly, Molina, for some reason, I don't know if it was medical or whatever, he he couldn't go outside the wire anymore. And he Molina asked me. Didn't... I'm sorry? Molina didn't go outside the wire after that? No, no not, not after that, but like towards the end of our deployment, he... I don't know what happened. I, n I never got word of why, but he asked me, Hey, do you want to take my place going out, going out? And I was like, dude, you have no idea the, the type of anger that I have, that I've been sitting here this whole time um, uh, at this post while you guys have been out there. I'm like, I thought he was messing around with me. I was like, what do you mean? If, do I want to go out? Like, are you asking me to replace you? Like what's going on? I don't remember what the reason was, but then he, he pulled the uh, gym guard for me while I was out there for him uh, for like three weeks or so, if I remember correct. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that. Yeah. But so, so I left, I left, I think on the 19th to come home of March. So 
I don't have any clear clue what really happened after I left. I've heard stories and other things sure. of how the deployment ended. So but that so how did it wrap up? So that was part of that was part of when you left. Yeah, I I was I think I was asked, hey, do you want to go out the wire? And I was so excited. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Molina took my place um, doing pulling gym guard. But it was it was only temporary. Um, and then um, from the only other thing I remember off the top of my head was we we did that. I ended up going back to my post at the gym and then uh, they they told me and Ayala to to go back as early party to stateside uh, with cab. So the three of us left Fallujah, I think, the beginning of the last month, if I remember correctly. And the rest of the guys were there for like three, four weeks, if not a little longer than that. So we, Ayala, myself and Cab ended up being the, yeah, the early party. We, we, we came back to Lejeune. Uh, they put us in, in barracks there. Nobody was there. We were basically on our own. We were on our own program. We, we did whatever the hell we wanted. Uh, we took care of paperwork for the rest of the guys and that was it until, until I saw them when they came back. So did you get any time to go back down to Miami when you got back before everyone else or did you just stay up in? No, no, we just stayed, we just stayed up there on our own. Um, and then we came, we came down, we came down with the rest of the guys. So what was the homecoming like for you? Uh, it was, it was strange for me. Um, I was dealing with a lot of emotions that I wasn't aware of at that moment. Um, I think honestly, I was still just pissed off of how I think uh, command, I almost saw it as, I made it personal. I, may, I, I thought of it as command just didn't see my value to the platoon and stuck me in a gym for the rest of my deployment. I think my last mission was a good month before we actually left on, on as the early party back home. Oh, wow. I didn't yeah. Yeah. And, um, so homecoming for me was odd. I remember the, uh, when we got out of the airplane at the airport, at uh, Miami International and there was a bunch of civilians around and they saw us and we were in our, in our camis and all that. And they just started clapping, which was, I guess it was nice. Um, but I don't think I really appreciated that as much as, as maybe I should have. It, I think it was odd for me. Cause I, I think it was the whole, I went from, we're in Fallujah and all of a sudden we're back home. And I don't think I knew how to handle that. Um, and then I remember getting to the unit late at night, like maybe close to midnight. And uh, my, our families were there. And I remember I met Ferrer's dad uh, and Husky's mom or both parents. And I, I I didn't think to say this. I just kind of said to all of them, I was like, to their parents, I was like, hey, you know, like Husky, I was like, hey, um, I want you to know that without him doing his job the way he did it, we, we at least my vehicle, lead vehicle, wouldn't have K 
came back in one piece like we did. Um, and I told his dad that his dad looked at me, he almost started crying. Uh, and I told Ferrer's dad too, I was like, Hey, you know, you're basically kind of like your son performed admirably for some reason. It was important for me at that moment to say that. Um, but yeah, the, the whole homecoming experience, I guess where most guys could get this almost relief or urge of, uh, I guess, pride of being back home. Like, I don't think I, I allowed myself to feel that for some reason. Like to this day, I couldn't tell you why. So how was it with the family now that you're home? Um, it was a rough transition. Um, my parent, like, I remember I was back home. We had like maybe a month or two where we didn't have to report back to the unit. And I remember I couldn't sleep at night. Like I, I, it's not that I was having nightmares or anything like that. Um, though, though eventually those would come later on, but initially I just was awake at night. I couldn't go to sleep. My mind was always on. And I remember uh, I'd be up all night. I'd, I would find stuff to do, like just get on the computer and do stuff. Like, I don't know, like, I couldn't do anything. Um, and my mom would be like, you know, why can't you be normal? It's been, a, it's been a month. Why can't you be normal and just go to sleep? And I tell my mom, like, I, I can't, like I'm trying and I just can't. Like, it was a lot of misunderstanding between my parents and me where they just couldn't understand what I, I had been through uh, just, I guess, from a physiological standpoint where if you remember, we were, we, I don't know how many hours we're ahead. Uh, Fallujah is ahead of us, that time zone difference, but we were also going out on missions at night. Yeah, and it's, it's like, like eight that, hour difference. And yeah, I mean, even for me, it's, it's like a, yeah, it's like I a half day. Issues. It's like half. It's like a half day difference. On top of sometimes we were out during the day, other times we were out at night. And I, I don't. I don't think I was aware of that. I, I think I kind of was like, well, I guess this is the, the the norm for when you deploy. I didn't. I didn't see it as, dude. You were you were like eight hours in a different time zone going through all these experiences and you were also flip-flopping back and forth from day missions, night missions, night missions, day missions. Even if I was in the back, not really doing much, I was still trying to stay awake and, uh, you know, just stay alert just in case something went down when I I needed to take over something, you know? Uh, So it was a lot of, it was a lot of, it was a rough transition in that sense. Like my parents, unfortunately were not, very uh conducive to that whole trying to i guess bounce back from deployment like that like i they were very well you know what are you going to do now are you going going back to school and in my head i'm like i just came back from iraq like i don't i don't have this urge to go back to school i'm trying to figure out how to sleep at night um i remember i i would you know, I, I, I reached out to some old friends who they had cars because I didn't have a car. And I remember they picked me up and uh, they'd be driving around. And, you know, Miami doesn't have the, the best drivers. And I remember that there was an instance where 
they, they, someone cut us off. And when we got to a stoplight, I wasn't even thinking I got out of the car and I went over and kicked the, uh, the rear view mirror on the outside. I just kicked it. Wham. And I was like, what, what the F blah, 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 blah. And I went off. I just went completely off. My friend came out. He's like, dude, what, what the hell are you? Right. And I was like, oh shit. Like, I'm really pissed. Like, I'm just pissed off. And um, thankfully, the, the other person didn't call the cops or anything. He would just looked at me like, what the hell? Um, and I had a lot of instances like that where I was just pissed. Like, I just out of nowhere, I'd scream and go off on somebody. And I'd had all these like anger issues, which again, it wasn't I don't I don't think personally it was from my time in Fallujah. I just think it kind of it made things worse the things that were already there from, you know, my childhood and all that, uh, it kind of, yeah, exacerbated. Yeah. Yeah. And it took a long time for me to even recognize that, let alone, um, get myself in that mindset of, dude, you need counseling, you know? So I know a lot of the guys that we deployed with had jobs or school, um, cab was a cop. Yeah. Uh, He's still Digi- a cop, as far as I know. Yeah, Digivani, big Digivani was a cop. Um, people, Aoki did what Aoki did. <laughs> um, you literally went to boot camp, to SOI, to MOS school, came back, had no time to drill, and then, boom, off to Iraq. So you had nothing really to go back to as far as like a job waiting for you. Gotcha. How long did it take before no. you started to get back into the workforce and all that? Um, so we came back, I want to say spring of 2006. <clears throat> and I didn't, I didn't start working until a civilian job until I want to say 2009. So uh, did you stay on orders after you got back in 07? No, I, I, I was, comp- I wanted to be completely done. Um, I remember they, they, you do the whole questionnaire of, Hey, uh, do you, do you feel a certain type of way? Do you, you know, the uh, medical questions that you have uh, for mental health? Uh, and I remember I straight up lied on all those. I was like, Hmm, I do kind of feel like anger or I do kind of feel weird about these things, but I was just like, I'm fine. It's because I just wanted to be done with it. Uh, and I think most of us, uh, we're in that same mindset. Like, I don't want to stay on orders for another month trying to talk about my feelings um, at all. Uh, I think I was like, yeah, it, 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 I, I'm okay. But if something comes up, I'm pretty sure I can handle it. Um, so we, I don't know about everybody else, but I know I straight up lied on all that stuff. I was like, nope, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. I tried um, to put that on my post-deployment health assessment too. <laughs> Which is hilarious looking back, but yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah. And, um, but I didn't start working a civilian job until 2009. Uh, and I could, I could be off in my timeline, but by then I had, I had met my, um, I was dating my soon to be wife at that point. Um, and she was like, Hey, she, she's a teacher at the, at a kids museum. And she goes, hey, you ever thought about 
working security, it sounds like it's what you kind of did in, in the military. And I go, I don't know, you know, I was like, eh, I, I like when we came back, I remember cab was like, dude, why don't you become a cop? And I was like, uh, I, I already knew enough to know that I, I didn't like the bureaucracy of the Marine Corps. And in my head, I was like, it, it just seems like a lot more bureaucracy as a police officer. And he was like, he was insistent for like two to three months. Like, dude, go take the exam, go get into the police academy. Uh, you know, you have the blah, 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 all this experience and you'd be a good cop. Him and I think, I think uh, um, Big DiGiovanni also told me the same thing. But I just wasn't feeling it. And then uh, when my, my wife at the time was like, hey, do you want to do security? And I was like, well, I got to do something. So I was like, yeah, sure. And I just quickly got my security license. It was, it was a joke. Um, all you got to do is pay the fee, basically. And that's it. And you're licensed. And I started working security at a kids museum. Nice. So now you said you started to go and get treatment and stuff. I want to jump up to that because I know there's probably a lot of people that watch these that are veterans and we still have the stigma even now today that uh, PTSD is bad, TBI, blah, 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 blah. But what was, what was the catalyst to make you go get help? Um, so I didn't start getting help until 2011. Uh, by then I had been married to my, my then wife for about a year and we were living together and she, she would say I, I would kind of mumble in my sleep. And then when she would try to wake me up, I do remember like I would kind of reach out and kind of just grab uh, not knowing what I was doing. And she would like, I sprained her wrist, like maybe two or three times back to back. I just like that. Cause she, she was startled me. And, uh, I was either having a, a, I don't know if it was a bad dream or what, but it, it was something was going on there. And I remember at that point, I, I started thinking about it. Like, well, maybe I, I do need help. And then but I, I didn't, I didn't seek help yet. I had been going to the VA already. Um, when we came back, <clears throat> I remember our, one of our first drills back, uh, Hernandez, he, we were doing something and, uh, something fell and I bent over to pick it up and I, and I winced like really loud. And I was like, what the hell was that? And in, in my own mind, like, I'm not saying none of this out loud. And he was next to me. He goes, he goes, in his accent, he goes, hey, Flores, hey, uh, you need to go to VA. And I was like, what? Hey, no, 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 you, 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 you need to go to VA. And I was like, nah, I'm, I'm good. Like he, he had been promoted to sergeant at that point. I was like, nah, sergeant, I'm good. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm, not, I'm not asking you. I'm telling you, you need to go to VA. And I'm like, he could see it in my face. Like I was like, eh. and he's like, you don't feel it now. But in 10 years, I guarantee you, you're going to feel it. And if it wasn't for him, I would have never gone to the VA. 
And in 2009, I had my first appointment at the VA. I got registered and all that stuff. And all these horror stories that you hear, hear from guys going through the process of the VA and, you know, getting, getting rated and all that. Uh, thankfully, I didn't go through that. Um, when, I, when I started going through the process of doing my claims and all that, like, I was like, I'm just going to do it because I literally was told to. I had no desire to do any of that stuff. Um, and the, the guy who prepared my claims was also Marine. He was like a retired gunny or something. And he's like, I need, I need your, your SRB and I need your medical records. So that was a mission to get from my unit. Uh, admin was, I always had to be on their ass, but after about a month and a half of just bugging them, they gave me everything. I turned everything over to my, to the, the, uh, claims person. And he just made a copy of everything. And he goes, um, you're going to put in a claim for tinnitus. You're going to put in a claim for your back. You're going to put in a claim for your knee. And I go, what? And he goes, yeah, you're going to put in a claim for TBI for all these things. And I'm like, nah, nah, Gunny, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm okay. He's like, no, no, trust me. You have the medical paperwork to back you up. You're going to, you might not feel it now, but somewhere down the line, I guarantee you, you're going to feel it. Same thing um, Hernandez told me. And I was like, okay. And sure enough, from 2010 to like 2012, my back started hurting. I, I couldn't sleep. Uh, I was irritable all the time. I was pissed off. Um, I had shoulder problems, um, just different things. And uh, dude, honestly, if it wasn't for Hernandez telling me that, I probably wouldn't have gone to the VA, which going back to your question, um, um, they were, the VA was like, Hey, do you want to do counseling? And I was like, I don't know. Sure. And they set me up with the PTSD clinic, uh, for group counseling. And I went to one session and I was like, I can't do group. I'm not, I'm not, I, yeah, I'm glad I did that because I'm like, I'm not doing this shit again. No fucking way. Well, I don't know about you, but it was like a victim story. How, who was more fucked up in the head? Like I got shot. Well, I got blown up and shot. That, that was exactly my experience. And it was from older dudes from like Vietnam and they were like in wheelchairs, they were missing limbs. And here I am, I'm 23, 24 at that point. And physically I have, I'm okay. Like I, you just look at me and you're like, Oh, he's okay. And it, it felt like a, well, who has, who has the bigger dick story, you know? Um, all these guys would tell their stories like, oh, I got blown up in Vietnam or some guys from OIF too. They were like, yeah, I lost an eye and this and that. And I'm like, oh, okay, Flores, um, it's your turn to share. And I'd be like, nope, no way. Mm-mm. Uh, yeah, I, I group counseling for me did not work at all. And I felt, I felt so uncomfortable and it just made me dig myself deeper into that I didn't, I didn't do much, anything in my deployment, you know? Uh, and it took for me to do one-on-one counseling with, uh, another veteran. And he eventually told me, dude, you can't compare your own experiences and your deployment 
with someone else's is it's just not fair. And yeah, that, that, that's a hard one for, I think a lot of people to get to that point to realize it's like, I hear so many people who had deployments who were like, well, I didn't get blown up. So my deployment wasn't as bad as yours or I didn't get shot or whatever. And so what my, my service was less than what yours was or someone else's was. And it's like, no, it's your story. That's why I'm doing this too, is so we can all tell our stories. Yeah. And, and um, if I hadn't gone through all that experience with uh, that particular counselor, and then I ended up going to other counselors, I don't think I would have agreed to do this either because I would have still been in that mindset of, dude, I, I personally did, don't feel like I did anything worthwhile like that to kind of compare to any, like even your experience, for example, like I still would have been in that mindset of, oh, I can't really say much to anything because I was just some guy in the back just trying to, trying to prove my worth, you know? Well, I mean, I, for the most part, thankfully, I was just some guy in the back too. Um, I probably slept in the back more than you did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say this much. Those back seats suck. In Humvee. Yeah. Those back seats took a, a big toll on my back. I later found out uh, for sure. For sure. I, I still have back pain. I still have pain in my shoulders, my neck. Uh, it didn't do my knee any favors either. Uh, my ankles are messed up, you know. So now what are you doing now? Uh, so uh, last year, um, my uh, my ex-wife now, we, we separated. Um, we had... We have two kids together and I went from being a full-time parent. I'm going to tend to their every need. Um, My son was diagnosed on the spectrum with autism. And at that point I was looking for a, I was basically looking for a reason to leave my civilian job. And, And when they diagnosed him, I was like, you know what? I'd rather pour myself all my my energies into his therapies and what he's going to have going on and not have to worry about a schedule i'll just stop working cold turkey and my my wife at the time was like i told her i was like you you just worry about working and uh and i'll worry about him um but when we separated um i found myself in that weird space of like, I don't, I don't live with my kids. They live with their mom. Um, and I kind of, I, I started counseling again because I knew I was going to spiral. I knew enough about myself that I was going to spiral into, into a depression. And uh, my counselor, eventually, uh, I saw through counseling that uh, he, she's like, you're, you're going to have to mourn that life that you used to have of, you used to be a full-time parent and there for, to tend their needs to, for lack of a better phrase, you're a part-time parent now, you know, when you're with them, you're with them, but you got to have to find something else um, to fill in that void um, and find out who you are. Because in this whole process of separating from my ex, I kind of lost myself. I, I was so focused on being a parent that I didn't do anything for myself. Like, my days consisted of waking up and 
taking my my ex at the time um, to work and and then tending to my son's therapies. And then um, when his sister was born, that ramped up even more. Uh, so I went from that to now I kind of in this weird void of trying to figure out who I am and uh, what I want to do for the rest of my life while also being cognizant of I'm still a parent, but not like I am used to being. Uh, it's funny. Somebody told me recently, oh, you're you're a reservist parent. <laughs> and I, I cracked up. I was like, I, I love that. That was awesome. I was like, you know what? Yeah, I am. And but to answer your question, I'm at this moment trying to figure out who I am, what I want to do. I if you ask me, uh, who are you now? I couldn't tell you. I I'm honestly I I'm trying to figure out who who, who Flores is and what he wants to do. <laughs> We're, we're on similar paths there, buddy. We are on similar paths there. So earlier this year, I don't know if you heard, but something happened. Um, some people got some runny noses and some sniffles and some cough <laughs> and the world changed. Um, do, you rem- do you remember uh, when all these lockdowns started? Yeah, it was... Uh... It was March. I want to say March, uh, if not the first or second week of March of uh, 2020 this year. I mean, and I, I said that wrong, but I, what I meant to say was, do you remember how your life changed or did it change really? Um, the only thing that really changed for me was initially I was keeping my distance from my kids just because uh I didn't know, I didn't know enough to know if it was safe or not, um, to see them. Like, I'm like, if, if I get the, this virus, I don't generally want to give it to them. Um, I knew enough that it, it seemed like it was very similar to like the flu virus as far as symptoms and all that. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I'll be fine if I catch it within five to six days, I'll kick it. But um, initially I wasn't seeing my kids. I think I went like four or five weeks where I didn't see them. And finally I, I, I told my, my ex, I was like, Hey, I, uh, this isn't going away anytime soon. And I can tell you at least on my end, I haven't really been exposing myself like that. And so I want to see the kids and she was, she was very receptive. She was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. Um, but at least for me, life didn't really change too much. I mean, I'm in, I'm in, I'm naturally an introvert, so I don't really go out too much. Um, I know a lot of people, especially if they're like very extroverted, they're like, dude, my life is, has been turned upside down and I get social anxiety and all these other things. And I'm like, shit, I've been training for this my whole life. (laughs) I, I find it funny you said that because um, I am still seeing people as far as like therapy once in a while. I was on a fairly regular basis prior to the pandemic and I've seen my therapist once since the pandemic started. And I told her, I go, you know, for the first time since 2007, I don't feel the PTSD being there. And she's like, well, that's good. I go, but it's not because the PTSD isn't there. It's because everyone else has now come up to my vibration level. 
I, I feel yeah. like everyone is suffering from what we've been dealing with for the last 13 years. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, um, um, it's, it's a little, little weird for me just because again, I don't, I don't necessarily contribute my PTSD from my service. It, it's more like it aggravated what was already there. And I think I was predisposed to a bunch of the stuff that we, we as veterans go through just because of the type of upbringing that I had. Um, so like, I don't really get nightmares like that anymore. Um, I think if I get nightmares, it's mostly stuff from my childhood or honestly things like I'll have a nightmare here and there where we're back in Fallujah and something happens totally the way it didn't happen. Like something, I don't know, like the first time we got hit with an IED, like it'll happen a different way or in a different manner and stuff like that. But I, at least for me, I don't think uh, my PTSD is very service related, if that makes any sense. Like, obviously there's that component there. Um, but as far as nightmares and stuff like that, like I have more, I have more issues uh, dealing that step that stem from my childhood than my, my time in service, if I'm being honest. No, that makes sense. I mean, you, you have described that, that uh, best way to put it is a disconnected family that you grew up in. Speaking of which, are, how was your relationship with your mom and dad? So, so um, with my counselor now, um, I was seeing her pre-pandemic uh, once a week. And then when everything shut down, we, we transitioned to over the phone. Um, and it, it's, it's better in certain ways. Um, but she did tell me based off of what I have told her that there's a good possibility that I'll never have the type of relationship with them that I would want um, just because of how I am and how they are. Uh, the best I can do is, you know, try to keep an open communication with them. Um, and, and I don't, I think this comes off as, oh, oh, woe is me, but no, I'm just kind of being honest. And to be honest, uh, my relationship is a little better with them, but it's not what I would typically want a relationship with them to be. So now what about your siblings? Did any of them follow in your footsteps and go in the military? Nope. No, <laughs> I'm the only one as far as I know. Uh, I'm first generation military service. Uh, I don't I don't see my siblings doing any service like that. Uh, so no. You still close with them? Uh, as As close as I can be with them given the type of childhood we, we had, uh, I'll, I'll text them. I'll, I keep texting them every now and then, but it's, it's not, we talk every day. So do you stay in touch with any of the guys from the unit? Dude, you're the, I want to say you're the first person I've had a full blown conversation with since we came back. Um, I saw Cab two years ago, I think. He, uh, 
he had a surgery to remove his appendix, I believe. And I just, by coincidence, found out that he was in the hospital and something in me was like, you got to go see him, even though I hadn't seen him in like years. And I went to see them and we talked a little bit. Uh, I was still married at that point when I saw him. Um, but I haven't really talked to much anybody like that. Well, I think I told Mason that we were uh, going to be doing this because I got, well, we've been on the, on this. I got a text from him that says, tell Flores hi for me. Dude, I, I haven't seen Mason. And I remember when we came back, he, if I remember correctly, they, he medically separated. So I haven't seen him since 2007, I think. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. A lot, a lot of these, like we did the, we did the 10 year reunion here. Um, and I was invited. And at the time I was like, I was going to go. And then I ended up not going. I think I text Molina saying, Hey, um, something came up and I can't make it. I'm sorry, but I think I, I used it as a crutch to, I, I wasn't really ready to see everybody like that. Um, there were still a lot of things I was working through. And even to this day, I think there's a big part of me that almost feels like I didn't, I didn't prove my, my worth to the rest of the guys like that. And uh, it's almost hard to, I guess, face them all these years later. That's weird. Cause I mean, I, I think you were probably one of the few people that really stood out to me. Um, you were so young and so new yeah I, I think that was another reason why I decided to do this just to kind of get a, a different perspective of things than my own you know because I again I, I saw things through the scope of what I was going through a 20 21 year old uh, PFC Lance Corporal um, I don't know how er, any everyone else saw it you know I know. I, I think that you had a good reputation. Um, we may have picked on you a little bit, but uh, no. Rightfully so, though. Rightfully so. Probably. It was a good hazing. Yeah, yeah. So here we are again in 2020, or as I call it, Batfuck World. Um, how was Miami during all the civil unrest? Uh, we had couple of protests here i think mostly um the whole when the whole george floyd thing went down um we had a couple of pockets of protests here nothing crazy uh at least compared to everywhere else and even with with these elections like again you've had protests from both sides here uh from trump supporters and biden supporters but at least for me, nothing, nothing crazy that I was, that I was able to see. Okay. So are you, how are you feeling about like, what's going on? Do you, are you concerned with the future from here? Or are you still just focusing on making you the best you possible? I, I think I'm leaning more towards the latter. Um, there, there's a little bit of concern. Um, again, when, when the, uh, when this uh, transition happens, if it does happen with uh, Trump transitioning to Biden and all this other stuff, like 
Uh, I think there's a little bit of concern there. Just you don't know how people are going to react. Um, I think social media has given the voiceless a big ass voice, uh, a platform to bitch and bitch. And, you know, at least for me, it's like I, I don't really give a shit who's president, to be honest. Like I'm, I'm more concerned with my local government and um, them doing their jobs and picking up the trash when, needs to, when it needs to be picked up and have the water on and stuff like that. Things that'll affect my everyday life. Like, uh, I don't remember the last time Trump signed an order or, or even Obama that affected me personally or any, or anyone else, you know, unless, unless you're law enforcement or military, then that's different. But yeah, no, um, I, I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Do you think, um, do you think that when this is all said and done, uh, what am I trying to say here? How is, let me rephrase that. When this is all said and done, do you think the pandemic will go down as something that helped you grow or? I think it helped me grow. I think it, it, it forced me into a spot um, where I needed to kind of, almost self-reflect, especially with what I have going on. Like the, the pandemic hit shortly after I separated from my ex. So it kind of forced me into a spot where I had no other choice, but to, uh, reflect on my own self and, uh, get to the root of what I really have going on, at least for me personally. Um, so yeah, I think at least for me, yeah, it's, it's, it's forced me to grow. So are you staying, um, what are you doing for your mental health other than just uh, talking with a therapist? Um, I, I'll, I'll do like the, uh, you know, the coping techniques that they, they taught me is keep busy, music, a lot, a lot of it is I need to figure out who I am and what I want to do. And until I have a, a sense of, that specifically um my progress consists of just trying to openly communicate more where i where in my 20s i really didn't well you're doing a good job at the communication buddy and i appreciate <laughs> it i really do appreciate the fact that you decided you wanted to open up here thank thank you that means a ton i mean i mean hell i remember when was it i think it was either a year or two ago when you first started the podcast deal i don't know if it was under the same name or not and i remember listening to the episode of how you recounted the day that you got hit with the uh the suicide uh bomber and uh i remember feeling like there was there was a sense of man i'm, I'm really proud of you for doing that because i know it it's not easy and um when you reached out to do this one, I was like, it kind of motivated me. I was like, you know what, let me, let me get on here, uh, say things from my perspective, maybe things that a lot of you guys didn't really know about. And, and yeah, and it, uh, uh, as a byproduct, it, it does kind of get me communicating more. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope you do take something away from this. Um, and I hope that, you'll come back on in the future too. Yeah. Maybe after all the craziness gets done and we can see how everything's going. Yeah, yeah. So 
I got to say, so when I created this, I created the modern Ronin and I, the podcast itself is called After the Battle Campfire. I modeled it after the idea that, you know, we all, all of us in the military love these warrior cultures like the Spartans and the samurai and all that crap. Yeah. They didn't have the luxury of going back to Camp Fallujah at night. So they'd create campfires and kind of talk shit around the thing. So that's what I want to push out here is us recounting our, our battle time. Right. But the modern Ronin, I really phrased that. I picked that name because I don't know how much you know about the samurai culture. The Ronin was a warrior who lost his master, right. but always wanted to continue to serve. And people get it mixed up with, oh, they all became mercenaries. They didn't. So the last question I ask everyone is, what does it mean to be a modern Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think it goes hand in hand with my my uh, current journey of trying to figure out who I am uh, post-service, post-marriage. You know, I'm with someone else now. I'm, I'm in a, a much better place uh, trying to figure out what it means to be a parent to me. It's not anymore the traditional sense that most people think of um and just trying to figure out what i want to do and be the best version of me and be a better version of myself than i was even yesterday uh so it kind of goes hand in hand with that it's funny you asked me that because i am on this journey of trying to figure out who i am now and what i want to do you know it's kind of like, uh, yeah, the, the most Ronins are on a never-ending journey of uh, almost trying to find fulfillment in, in a life where they don't, like you said, they don't have a master. They don't have uh, maybe that, that guidance that, you would have, that normally uh, a samurai with a master would have. Uh, I'm kind of in the same boat where I'm like, I don't, I don't know who I am. Uh, and I don't know what I want to do. Uh, the best I can do is just trying to keep move forward and be a better version of myself. Well, man, it's been great talking to you. And I have to say, this is, I've learned a lot about you that I would have never I, thought. I know, I know. I mean, because from, from, the, from the social media posts, I figured, I figured I'd be talking to Flores, the spiritual guy. I don't know why I got that impression. Maybe it's the hair. <laughs> but I, I saw this spiritual guy who was into yoga in my head. No, dude. <laughs> no, no, I'm not, re I'm not really religious. Uh, I, I, I'm, I guess you could say I'm a little spiritual. I, I, I want to believe there's a higher something, even if it's aliens or Bigfoot or something. Uh, but I'm not, yeah, I'm not really religious like that. And uh, I'm, I'm more of a, I try to judge people by their character than what they think they are, if that makes any sense. No, it does, especially with today's uh, cult slash herd mentality. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, man. Well, you know, we've done two hours, it's almost two and a half hours. Holy smoke, yeah, yeah. So thank you for coming on and I stay in touch, man. I, I feel yeah. bad because like you, I haven't talked to anyone. You're the first person I've had outside of Ray that I've had it more than a 
five or 10 minute conversation. Well, Mason, every, when he gets drunk, but, um, <laughs> right. And he's going to watch this. So well, I hope you enjoy well, that. Mason. And, uh, uh, hi to Mason. Uh, yeah, it's, it sucks that I haven't, I haven't really reached out to any one of our guys, to be honest. Um, but, uh, man, we should try to do this with maybe someone else or one or two other guys simultaneously and, and just shoot the shit, you know? Yeah. Well, I'm definitely trying to get Stone, Ferrer and, uh, Danny to do a talk about our day. You got to see if he can pencil us in, you know, cause they're famous directors now and I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah. Danny, <laughs> it's going to shake my head, but anyways, man, thank you so much. We will talk soon. I'm going to yeah. end the recording right now. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you can follow us on social. Check us out at our website, modernronin.com on Instagram, the modern Ronin on Twitter at Tommy chase. one. And you can always support us at modernronin.locals.com. This is our locals group, and it'd be great if you guys joined and subscribed. Some great benefits. Talk to you guys soon.